James chapter 1, please. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're going to continue with a, with a topic we started last week. When we talked about, the, we asked the question, whence cometh temptation? Today we're going to talk about that same thing. Whence cometh temptation? But part 2, because as we'll see in just a moment, there are two parts to it here in this passage. James chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse number one. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father God, thank you so much for this passage of scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the truth contained here. And I pray today that you would guide us and direct us and help us as we look at this. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, to have clarity of thought today. And I pray that I'd be bold to say what needs to be said and uh, silenced to those things that I ought not to say. Guide and direct today. Speak to us and be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, right before we get started this morning, I want to ask a favor of you today. This particular message uh, in the first going could be somewhat depressing. It could be somewhat uh, difficult to listen to. Now, I usually only preach 35 minutes, and and, and anybody who wishes to argue with me about that, I can prove it to you because I record the sermons and I know exactly how long they are, 35 minutes. Today probably won't even be that long. But the first little bit of it is going to be a a kind of a hard slog. It's going to be a little bit difficult. So I want to ask you this morning, uh, if if you'll agree with me, will you promise me that you won't tune out in the first part? Will you promise me that you will stick it out until we get to the end? Because if you'll do that, I can promise you the ending is really good news. The ending is really good stuff. So how many would say with a raised hand this morning, I promise I will do everything I can to not tune you out at the beginning? All right, amen. All right. We'll move on. We learned last week when we first started this whence cometh temptation topic, we learned from verses 2 through 11 about the value of trials. We learned that they have a purpose. Perhaps you recall that. Trials produce patience and endurance in the life of the Christian. Trials 
help us to mature. Trials help us to grow up in, in Christ. But when we come to verses 12 and following now, we find that James' subject changes. He's using the same word here. The same word, the word parasmos or parasmon or parazo, all are different variants of the same word. And, 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 and depending on what translation of the Bible you're holding, it's either translated temptation or trial. But it's the same word. In the first few verses, he was talking about trials, but now there seems to be a different meaning. Now he seems to be talking about temptation in the sense that we normally think of that word, a solicitation to evil, a pull to give in to something that uh, God does not want in your life. The temptation he's talking about here now is what Eve experienced in Eden when Satan said to her, come on, God didn't say, you can't eat of that, go away. That's the temptation that we're talking about. The temptation that is being described here is what David experienced on the rooftop overlooking Uriah and Bathsheba's home and saw Bathsheba bathing there and was tempted to commit the sin of adultery which he knew to be against God's will. This is the temptation that Peter experienced when the servant girl tempted him to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the temptation that Jesus himself experienced when for 40 days in the wilderness he was tempted by the devil. It's also the temptation that you and I experience when we sit down in front of our computers or our televisions and are tempted to look at something that we ought not to look at. It's what we experience when a brother or a sister tries to draw us into gossip about another brother or sister. It's what we experience when tax time comes around and we don't want to pay all of our taxes and so we're tempted to lie about it. It's what we experience when our unsaved friends try to entice us to participate in activities we know are not pleasing to God. Temptation to sin. That's what he's talking about here. Not trials, like we talked about last week. Same word, but he's talking about it in a different way now. In the second part of the passage, it's temptation to sin. Now, verse 12 is an interesting verse. Notice verse number 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That actually seems to be a bridge verse between the two topics. The verses prior to that, he's talking about trials. The verses after that, he's talking about temptations. And this particular one, it's difficult to tell which he's talking about here. Depending on which translation of the Bible you're holding, it might say trials. NIV, NASB, ESV, I think all say trials there. New King James, King James, say uh, temptation there. So he might be saying, blessed is the man who endures trials, as we described last week, tests and problems in life. He might also be saying, blessed is the man who endures temptation, the solicitation to sin. I think either would be true. Either would be true. We certainly know that it's a true statement to say, blessed is the man who endures trials. That was the whole point that we learned last week, because of what they bring into our life. They do help us to grow up. They do build maturity in our life. They do build endurance and steadfastness and all those things. So it would be true if that's what he meant. But it would also be true if he was saying, blessed is the man who stands up under temptations. And I tend to think that's actually what he's talking about there. The one who endures temptation, doesn't give in to temptation, I think is what he's talking about. Notice there's two different benefits he says there in that verse to the one who endures temptation. First of all, he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. Enduring temptation proves the validity of our faith. 
That word approved means considered good, judged worthy, genuine. It pertains to that which is approved by testing and honored and approved and respected on the basis of a proven worth. Interesting, isn't it? I think what he might be saying there is that how we respond to temptation demonstrates the validity of our faith, proves the validity of our faith. After all, who could not be a good Christian? Who could not live in a way that's pleasing to God if there were no temptation in life? It's the very thing that proves the validity of our faith. He goes on, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So enduring temptation also carries the promise of a future reward. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that crown of life is. I think it's just referring to life itself, but there's all kinds of things been written about the crowns. He's talking a little bit there like Paul in Corinthians when he said everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. I don't know whether we're actually going to receive a crown or whether or not it's just referring to life itself. Or I do know this. It's referring to reward. It's saying that there is reward for those who endure temptation. So blessed is the man who endures temptation, he says in verse number 12. Now, at least one of the commentators that I read made a very interesting point about this particular verse. He said, perhaps James was dealing with a situation here where trials talked about in the first part, were causing some to justify temptation, talked about in the second part. Remember who he's writing to. Verse number one says he's writing to the dispersed, the diaspora, Christian Jews who had been dispersed under persecution. They were going through terrible difficulty and persecution. And the theory then would be that perhaps some were justifying their falling into the temptation to sin because of their difficulties and trials. And maybe that's why James is talking about them both the way he is in this passage. And some of you might reject that theory out of hand and say that's absolutely ridiculous. But before you do, let me suggest that we do it all the time. Think how many people justify sin because of trials and difficulties in their life. Think how many people justify giving in to temptation because of the trials and difficulties of life. How many justify withholding the tithe from God because of the trial of difficult finances? How many justify not worshiping with God's people on the Lord's day because of the trial of long hours of work? Or worse, long hours of play. That one's even worse. Many justify adultery because of the trial of a struggling marriage. Do we not see these things to be the case? One man put it like this. He said, some of those who were suffering for their Christianity were reasoning along these lines. My life is so difficult that I'm entitled to do whatever I can to make it more pleasurable. People have often allowed their difficulties to give them a sense of entitlement. Some of them have even allowed themselves to conclude that God is the source of their temptations. They may very well have reasoned along these lines. Number one, God has sent the trial. Number two, the trial has caused me to be tempted. And therefore, number three, God has tempted me to sin. This fellow goes on. He says, this has been going on since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. But notice that in blaming Eve, Adam stressed it was God who had given her to him. Remember that? The woman thou gavest to me made me do that. The whole fiasco was God's fault. 
one person said, to err is human. To blame it on the divine is even more human. It's an interesting thought, and it's one I think we ought to pay attention to. We might or might not agree, and that may or may not be what James is trying to accomplish here, but I, I think it's an, interesting, it's an interesting thing that we need to think about. Sometimes we justify succumbing to temptation based upon the fact that we're going through trials. So James says in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Whether he's talking about trials or the temptation is sin, it's true. Well, today I want us to concentrate on that second part, the temptation to sin. We learned what he had to say about trials last time. Let's talk about the temptation to sin just for a few minutes this morning. And let's ask ourselves, what does James have to say about that? And I think there are three things here I'd like to draw your attention to. First of all, uh, we ask the question, whence cometh temptation? And so let's ask it about this. Whence cometh temptation? And the first thing we notice that James says is it does not come from God. It does not come from God. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. In other words, don't be like Adam and don't blame God, because God is not the one who sends the temptation. Now, for the most part, James is not considered to be deeply theological. It's a practical book. He gives us a lot of instruction about practical issues. He doesn't spend a lot of time on doctrinal things. But here, in this particular passage, we have this wonderful little nugget filled with some truth about the nature of God. Notice he says, God cannot be tempted by evil. It's an interesting statement. One time Jesus was being harassed by his detractors. And he said to them, which of you convinceth me of sin? That's King James. Paraphrase it as, which of you can, 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 can demonstrate any sin in my life at all? Now, can you imagine saying a thing like that? I wouldn't say that to a single one of you. Because anybody who's known me for five minutes has already seen probably a hundred different examples of sin. I mean, we're sinners. I'm a sinner. I would never do that. I would certainly never do that to my wife, who could uh, write a book, I'm sure. But Jesus said, which of you convinceth me of sin? Why could he say it? Because he didn't sin. And we marvel at that. And we rejoice at that. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Hallelujah. Those of you who were in the Leadership Training Institute on uh, Wednesday nights after prayer meeting, when we were studying systematic theology, you might remember that there's a question that, gets a, that comes up when you talk about this stuff in, in theology. And that is, could Jesus have sinned? Now, the Bible is absolutely clear. There's, no, there's just no questioning the fact that Jesus did not sin. But the question often comes up, could Jesus have sinned? And uh, the belief that he could not have sinned is called the impeccability of Christ. And we studied that in the Leadership Training Institute. Well, James is making a similar point here in the matter of God and temptation. As one author put it, quote, James made it abundantly clear here that God cannot be tempted. There is nothing in God to which evil can make an appeal. He is literally untemptable. And so that's the first thing he tells us, God cannot be tempted. But then the second thing he says is God does not tempt anyone else. He does not tempt anyone to evil. And I really can't improve on that statement. It's as simple a statement as you're going to find in the scripture. It means exactly what it says. He is not tempted and he 
does not tempt anyone. Now, verses 2 through 11 does, do tell us that he tests, right? He tests us. He brings trials in our life. But does he tempt us to evil? No. He does not tempt you. So whence cometh temptation? Number one, it doesn't come from God. Number two, whence cometh temptation? Well, it comes from you. It comes from you. Notice what he says in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Flip over to chapter 4. It may be just on the facing page there for you, but look at the first two verses of chapter 4. And you'll see that later on he's going to a little bit return to this theme. (coughs) Chapter 4, verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. And so he's saying it comes from within you. Temptation comes from within me. When God judged the world with the great flood and saved only Noah, listen to what he said. He pointed out that mankind was evil within. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually from within. Jesus said plainly, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners comes from within. Temptation comes from within. It's the old story, and I've shared it with you before, but it's such a great illustration, I've shared it again. It's the old story of the frog and the scorpion. You've heard that, right? Anybody heard the frog and the scorpion? I know some of you have, because I've used it here before. Frog and the scorpion. You remember they were sitting alongside of a riverbank, and they needed to get to the other side of the river. And the scorpion said to the frog, how about I hop on your back? You carry me across the water to the other side. And the frog looked at him and said, are you out of your mind? I know you're a scorpion and you will sting me. I'm not going to take you onto my back and take you across the water. And the scorpion says, oh, no, 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 you can trust me. He says, I I, I need you to get to the other side. Why would I sting you? And with many such words, he convinced him. And so finally he hopped on the back of the frog and the frog took him across the river and halfway across the the scorpion stung him. And as his eyes were glazing over in death, the frog looked at him and said, what is the matter with you? Why did you do that? Now we're both going to die. And the scorpion said, I'm a scorpion. That's what we do. We sting. And the fact is, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Sinning is what we do because a sinner is what we are. And see, that's a vital distinction. It's so vital for us to think about that. We cannot understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot understand the good news of Jesus Christ. If we don't understand that, we are sinners by nature. From the moment of our conception, we are sinners. David said it in his great prayer of confession when he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Paul referred to this inner sin nature. He called it the old man in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, Put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That sin nature that is part of us, that we inherit, we inherit it, this old man from our earliest ancestor, Adam. He was the first to fall, and we inherited from him. 
Paul said in Romans, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. He also said in verse number 19 of that chapter that by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So whence cometh this temptation he's talking about here? Well, it doesn't come from God. It does come from within me and within you. And that leads us to a third thought. Whence leadeth temptation? Now, I mentioned in the introduction, and I asked you if you would be willing to hold on, because some of these things might be difficult to hear. And certainly the reminder that we are evil is not an easy thing to fall upon our ears. And the fact that we are sinners by nature is not something we necessarily want to hear. Certainly we wouldn't call it good news, would we? And most people come to the Lord's house because they want to hear some good news. And so you're probably sitting there saying, Preacher, where's the good news? I'm not hearing it. Well, I warned you. Hold on a little bit. Because we've got a little bit more bad news to share before we get to the good news. So keep holding on. You promised me that you would. I want you to notice that James didn't stop with the simple truth that we are tempted by our own sin. He went on a little bit farther. Look at verse 15. He said, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In verse number 14, he said, we're tempted because of our own sin nature. In verse number 15, he said, when we fall to that temptation, it leads to sin. And also in verse number 15, that sin then leads to death. Now there's the real bad news. Now we're really getting into some ugly stuff. Most religions and philosophies will tell you exactly the opposite of that which James is teaching here. They'll tell you that you're okay, that any problems that you might have, any difficulties, any temptations that arise in your life, why, uh, they're not your fault. They must have something to do with your environment or, or how you were raised or something like that, your upbringing. It's somebody else's fault, not yours. But that's a lie. You see... The truth is, and what James is teaching us here, and what the whole Word of God teaches us is that we are broken. We are in need of repair. We are sick and in need of healing. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Notice what James says in verse number 16. The warning that he gives there. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived by the lie of the devil which tells you you're okay. Accept the truth. He says there in the verses that follow, he says, good things come from God, not evil. Good things, not evil. Temptation doesn't come from God. It comes from within, from what you are. And it leads to death, and it leads to hell. So now remember when I told you that if you'd hang on, we'd get to the better stuff? Well, we're there. So you can breathe a sigh of relief now, because you stuck it out. We've asked the question, whence cometh temptation? And we've concluded it does not come from God. It comes from within. We've asked the question, whence leadeth temptation? And we concluded that it leads to death and hell and destruction. But do you not want to praise God? And do you not want to shout this morning with the truth that it doesn't end there? If it ended there, amen, hallelujah. If it ended there, we'd have nothing to talk about. But praise God it doesn't. Praise God that he loved us too much to leave us in that state. Praise God that he made a way to fix the unfixable, to repair our broken lives, to save our lives. <coughs> praise the Lord, it doesn't end there. Notice verse number 18. Verse number 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Hallelujah. You know what he's saying right there? He's saying the same thing Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3 when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying the same thing that Jesus said when he was talking to Nicodemus. And he explained to Nicodemus that because you're literally born in sin, sinner by nature, you can't fix it. You have to be born again. You have to be remade most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We might indeed have been dead in sin. Sinners by nature and lost because of it. But Paul said in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 17 that God gives life to the dead. <laughs> Only God can. He said, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. He said God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, that's what James is saying here in verse number 18 when he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's good news, isn't it? Isn't it? We might be rotten to the core. We might be filled with temptation and sin. And if nothing changes, that state's going to lead us to death and hell. But God made a way of his own will, of his own will, because he loved us. He made a way. He brought us forth. He made a way to save us, to heal us, to fix us. Hallelujah. You see, it's not the temptation that comes from God. It's the opportunity for deliverance from temptation that comes from God. It's not the evil that comes from God. It's the good. The provision of salvation from evil. That's what comes from God. But. And it's a big but. It comes only by believing and trusting in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James doesn't say that here. James doesn't delve deeply into that at all. Because he is writing particularly to the saved. Remember that? Remember his audience? Those who were the dispersed, the Christians uh, who were dispersed abroad. But you know what? I can't neglect it because I don't know that's true. My audience here this morning might include some who are not saved. No doubt this audience includes both saved and lost. And so I must ask this morning, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Have you been born again. You see, if, if you're saved, if you're part of the audience that James is primarily addressing here, then he's going to spend the rest of the book describing the implications of this. Notice the very next verse, verse number 19, the first two words, so that, and then he's going to go on, and he's going to explain the implications of these things. And so we'll have time to talk about it. We'll get more fully into it next Thursday. For now, I might suggest the challenge for the believers among us, the Christians among us, is simply this, to recognize what he's saying. He's saying no more excuses. He's saying no more giving in to temptation and blaming it on our circumstances. No more blaming it on God. He has made a way. You have stepped into that way. Now walk in it. But he'll explain that more as we get on to it. If you're not yet a believer, 
I think the challenge is very similar for you this morning, but so much more vital. Still, no more excuses. No more excuses. No more blaming things on God. No more allowing yourself to be deceived by your adversary. Just believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren.